This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. It's really nice to be here. Um, I think uh, the amazing thing about uh, medicine is the the way that we spend our days. Um, I have two brothers, one's in a... Uh, an anesthesiologist, one's a vascular surgeon, and you wouldn't know if you followed the three of us around that we have the same job, basically. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's so true. And, and so when I was thinking about what I would talk with you guys tonight about, I, I, I thought it would be terribly boring to talk about road rash and, and this and that and this and that. And then online, I think it was Cycling News, um, recently had like a day in the life of one of our uh, sports directors. So I thought, oh, I'll do that. And so... We did the team did the uh, the race Perry Nice um, a couple of weeks ago, and so like day three, I just thought, okay, this is going to be the typical day for um, what I do, and so I just took notes and uh, made the slides with the help of one of the writers who's a little smarter at this stuff than I am, and so I I hope it'll be a little interesting, a little bit fun. It's going to be very experiential, not didactic in the least. There will not be a quiz at the end of this. <laughs> And I've been asked to um, ask you to hold questions to the end, but if you really definitely need to jump in and um, ask me something, uh, feel free, and, and we'll go against what they asked me to do. Um, so I've never given this talk before. Um, so how did I get here? I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma and played American football. And when I was younger, I was tall. And so when you put pads on me, that meant I was big. And so I, I, uh, then all the kids got big in the true sense of the word, and I stayed skinny and tall. And so I had to look for other sports options and went into running and then ultimately, ultimately in college and cycling. And it became reasonably clear early on that my, um, my future was not... Um, on the seat of a bicycle, but was going to be in classrooms and going to medical school. And, and I started just helping my uh, teammates with this and that as I progressed in the, the medical education system. And um, one thing led to another, and my interest in the sport um, persisted. And my activities and involvement grew. And, um, um, yeah, and in 2008, I was the first American physician ever to take care of a team competing in the Tour de France, which I thought was pretty cool, and took a long time to get there. And now I've done five, and uh, I'm looking to do like a sixth or a, and maybe a seventh and certainly not double, double digits before I turn things over completely to my assistants. Um, the, it's all about the bikes, right? These are some beautiful bikes that we had for the uh, Perinese. And uh, notice how incredibly tall that seat was. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's Johan von Sumeren, who's six foot seven, and chooses to ride. I think it's a 58 centimeter frame. Really crazy. Um, so that's how I got here. Um, the history of my team. Um, I'll fold this into getting to know you guys a little bit. Who here has ridden a bicycle in the last seven days? Raise your hands. Okay, cool. Who's ridden more than once in the last seven days? <laughs> oh, that's very good. Um, who's familiar with my team, Garmin and Sharp? Great. Who, um, who has uh, gone to the Tour of California in real life and watched a stage? Good. Um, a race of any type in Europe? 
spectator? The Tour de France, anybody? Perfect. Um, so you guys know bike racing. Um, so you, some, most of you will have heard of a guy named Jonathan Vodders, who's a character extraordinaire, retired uh, pro bike racer, um, and my boss. He, um, I was his team physician for his last team that he rode on, which was the Prime Alliance team, I think, in 2004. And he got really fed up with the situation that was um, going on then at the time in Europe and retired quite early and came to the U.S. and did one final season and then um, started a team himself. And so he, in 2005, he, and I, I like to say, I wish it, it meant something um, checkbook-wise, but I like to say I'm Slipstream Sports employee number two. But it, it doesn't mean a whole lot as far as money goes. But um, so Jonathan brought me in and several others, and we put together Slipstream Sports. And our, our, our mission initially and still to some degree is to provide a, a really supportive, uh, positive, and most importantly, clean environment for young American cyclists. And we've, this is the first year, 2013, that we've not had a developmental program. We started as only a developmental program, which generally means riders under the age of 23. But then um, we grew and, and uh, developed into a world tour team and also had a women's team as well. But um, economic uh, factors have eliminated the women's team in the, and the under-23 team, which we're all really disappointed about, and we hope that it's temporary. Um, but we've grown from you know 2005 when there were maybe six employees and, and a dozen riders aged 19 to 22 to um, a world tour team, which is the top-level group of 18 teams that have automatic entry into all three grand tours and a number of other important races. And I saw the, con the updated contact list the other day, and it was like 90-some employees, and only 29 of whom ride bikes for a living. So we're a pretty, <laughs> we're a pretty big operation. Uh, I have three assistants. We, we, as an organization, we do 250 race days a year. So that, in, that counts days where we'll have, um, like yesterday, we had a group in Belgium at Shell de Priest, and we had a, another group at Pay Vasco. So there's, that counts as two race days. But we, we cover the races, almost all the races, maybe 20 days or so, we don't cover with a physician. And, um, you know, I, I give Jonathan Vodders a lot of credit for um, appreciating the importance, um, both for health reasons and really also for, again, to contribute to the anti-doping climate on the team of, of having a physician in the entourage um, pretty much at all times. And uh, we, time and time again, prove our value, and, and, um, and it goes really quite well. Um, so the the people in that group of ninety some are the uh, the riders, obviously administration, medical people. The medical group is you know when I was when we were a smaller team, it was kind of me, and that was it. And then we brought in a chiropractor, and now we have um, two PhD sports physiologists. We have a an ergonomicist, I believe, PhD level. <laughs> And then we have we have all sorts of soigneurs, which are you know the massage therapists. But around the world, it's interesting to see that that area of like below MD level training is sliced up into different um, 
is sliced up in different ways. So, you know, we have people, we have soigneurs that are British and Australian and German and, and some are really like what we would call athletic trainers in the U.S. And some are really physical therapists. And so it's, it's pretty fun and interesting and impressive to see the skills that our, our Swanier group has. Um, the bike mechanics are an interesting group. They're some of my best customers. They're always hurting themselves and getting sick. Um, and generally, generally a nice bunch of guys. Um, so the, this is our... This is our mobile locker room, which is a humongous bus. We have two big kind of like rock star style buses in Europe. And then in the, in the U.S. This, at this point, we only do the tour of California, Colorado, and Utah, um, at which point we rent something and have it decaled up. But um, this is pre-race, the guy's prepping, and it's, it's always kind of amusing to watch and listen um, as they go about getting ready to go to work. Um, this is Andrew Tolansky. He got second at Paris-Nice a couple of weeks ago. He spent two days in the yellow jersey. He's 24 years old and is our rising star and a nice kid and lives in Napa um, because of his girlfriend. He grew up in Florida, but his girlfriend grew up in Napa. Um, um, coaches are super important. They're called DSs, Director of Sportifs in Bike Racing. Um, we have, I think, six full-time. Um, um, there's, we, we don't have a head coach or a lead director um, this season, so they kind of work together as um, like all co-lead director sportifs. This is Eric Van Lenker, a Belgian of some renown in his day. Um, Mike, we have two chiropractors. One's British, one's uh, American. This is Kevin Reichland from Boulder, Colorado. We do a lot of the kinesio tape um, You've seen, I'm sure, a lot of uh, endurance athletes, and I think even like American football, you see kinesio tape um, these days. I, as the medical staff has grown, I've learned to be very tolerant and understanding of what these different guys do um, and supportive because I don't understand it, and I certainly don't believe uh, that I've got the market cornered on what works and what doesn't work. The next one you'll love. So this is Kevin doing some kind of he calls it the disco ball. I, I call it the I call it the laser light show, but it's uh, this this pad that he like rubs over the muscles and it does infrared and ultrasound and like seven or eight different things all at once. And uh, whether it like truly truly works, I have no idea. But even even if the it, but the important thing is if the guys think it works, you know, the power of placebo is is huge. Um, and um, that's Sophie, one of our soigneurs, doing massage. Um, the mechanics, oh, friends and family members, I'll often <laughs> tag along. <laughs> In fact, it is impressive. The guys all—they don't all. A lot of them have wives and kids, and um, and we have sponsors too that pay our salaries and our bills. And uh, the me medical staff, we take care of everybody. We're like uh, traveling family medicine, emergency medicine clinic. Oh, this is the competition. Um, the very lovely team doctor for the Astana team. I don't know how that got in there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I don't know if this is that important, but uh, when you're talking about any um, international level sport, really anything these days, there's lots of acronyms involved. And uh, for us, it's uh, it's the UCI, the International Cycling Union, which is our NGB national governing or international governing body, IGB, and then USA Cycling is our NGB. The ADOs are the anti-doping organizations. The big one is uh, WADA, World Anti-Doping Agency. And for the U.S., it's USADA. And uh, USADA has been doing a lot of good work in the last 6, 12 months. And uh, I'm not going to digress into that area, but um, suffice it to say that of the 11 teammates that testified, um, six of them are current or former riders of mine, three current, three former. And I'm in there, too, if you've got the patience to read through 112 pages of reasoned decision-making. So most of us have offices, and, you know, when I'm in my emergency medicine mode, it's the emergency department. And when I'm in sports medicine mode, it's it's all over the place. And uh, I spend a lot of time in the team car. Um, And when you're, you know, the the caravan of cars that follow the race – the sequence is determined. I don't know if this is generally known by the by the riders by the general classification. So, if your riders in the first, you get to be the first car. That makes for an interesting day. If your rider, if your top rider is twenty second, um, then you're at the very back and you don't see bike racing all day. You're at the very tail end, and so we spend you know we spend our share at the very back, and uh, it's not so much fun. Um, do a lot of treatment in the bus and in the hotel and at the side of the road and wherever um, medical care or advice needs to be dispensed, that's where we do it. But it's a, it's a pretty uncontrolled vi- environment, and it's and it, it's a lot more fun, I think, than um, normal practice. That's uh, That's the start list, and each day it comes out. With the name of the, the teams, you can see in the groups, and then the riders on the left, and then the numbers to the right of each rider is their GC position and their time down from the leader. So when on the race radio, um, they call out riders that are in the break, and we can do a quick analysis of who's there and decide whether it's a serious break or not. And so the coach is most obviously is in charge of that, but they're calling out numbers and there's cars everywhere and motorcycles and so so i i help the coach a lot sorting that out it's it's it'll be the the director sportif me and a mechanic and all his equipment in the team car and then food and clothing and bottles and such in the back of the car then we always plaster the race profile on the dashboard too um so I, i was trying to think this is uh I guess somewhat philosophical, but when exactly does the day begin for me? And it, it, um, and it's, I'm really talking stage racing. If you're talking a single day race like uh, Perry Roubaix, which is Sunday, um, the race really started like yesterday when everybody started showing up at the race hotel. Um, but in a stage race, it's just this over and over and over and over thing. If you can, a grand tour, you just can't imagine. It starts on a Saturday and it ends on a. Sunday, 23 days later, it just goes on forever. <laughs> and it's, uh, 
I don't know how, how we do it. And in fact, I've only done one entire grand tour because the medical staff for, for every team that I've ever known and, and definitely for ours, we cut them, we cut them in half. So I'll do half the tour and half the zero. And, um, one of my other guys will, that we each do two halves. And, uh, um, it's just, the first year I was so excited. I'm, ah, I'm finally at the tour. So I'm going to do the whole thing. And so I get there three days early. I do the 23 days and then a day after, and it was way too long to be away from home. And, uh, so we have the luxury, the medical staff of cutting them in half. The writers obviously do not. And the other, the other staff, the other staff members do not either. Um, so really, it occurred to me driving up here from Santa Cruz that it's, the day really starts when the director for the race um, sends out an email. Um, we set up a group email for each race that includes only the people in the entourage for that specific race. So he sends out an email. Am I doing that? Yeah? Um, so he sends out an email to to everybody in the in the group for that race that tells us what the day what the plan is for the evening and the next day and so that's like the the cue card that we work with and so it'll be you know rider dinner at this time staff dinner at this time and then breakfast the next day so that's when my brain really starts thinking like okay we've finished today and now we're going to start with the next day um <clears throat> so the we do, have, we do have different breakfast times. The staff meets at a certain time, and so you'll have three or four mechanics, three or four soigneurs, two directors, chiropractor, me, uh, a media person, and we meet for breakfast too early most of the time. <laughs> and, uh, um, and we talk about what's going on with the riders and the equipment. And, um, and then the guys come for breakfast and I usually kind of like swing through and make an appearance and if anyone really has an issue they can grab me then to to talk about what's going on but somewhere around a half hour before we load the bus and head for the race I make rounds just like we like doctors do in hospitals and I go to each room and I talk to the guys and see if they need anything and deal with issues that are active um, and then we get on the bus and we go to the race and um, we always arrive an hour early um, to get the bus positioned and let our guys warm up a little bit and um, and then interact with the, the crowds, and that's pretty fun. That's when I sneak away and go for a walk and get to enjoy a little bit of, you know, everybody thinks, oh, this must be like a really fun job. It's not all that much fun, I assure you. It's a lot of long plane flights and kind of crappy hotels and a good bit of driving. I've been to Europe three times already since January 1st. Um, so then the race starts. Well, that, this, this morning on the 3rd, we belong to a group called the Movement for Credible Cycling, MPCC. And they, as a bike racer, you can be tested by, um, if you're an American bike racer, you can be tested by WADA directly, by UCI, um, USA Cycling, and if you're a member of our team or a number of other teams, you can also be tested by the MPCC. So they came that morning. They only test for cortisol levels. The French doctors have, a, they're, they're insane, insane about um, cortisol and uh, abuse thereof. And um, the World Anti-Doping Agency last year just uh, found that it was um, 
logistically impossible to control the use of corticosteroids because so many guys have environmental allergies and exercise-induced bronchospasm and true asthma that, that really justify the use of inhaled or, um, or nasal corticosteroids that, that it used to be controlled with paperwork, and it was just in, uh, they were just inundated with paperwork. And so they just kind of like freed up the use of corticos, which is okay, but the, pro- the problem is that, you know, if you test positive for it and you say, well, I use a nasal inhaler, well, you could have just taken a big intramuscular injection just as easily. Once, once it's in your system, you have no, the testers have no way of knowing how it got there. So I understand that, but to me, it's like a, a much milder doping agent compared to the big ones, EPO, blood transfusions, growth hormone. So, you know, and, and I feel I feel badly for my guys. If you can imagine, like, well, you've, you've seen them come across the finish line, and they're just like covered with dust, even on a beautiful, uh, you know, clear blue sky day, and they're just like dirty. And when it's raining, it's worse. And when it's the roads are bad, I mean, they basically spend four to six hours just breathing really crappy air, and it's uh, particulate matter and dust and pollen and everything. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm sure three quarters of my guys. If they had desk jobs, they wouldn't need those medications. But because they they have uh, because they're pro bike racers and they have to breathe that crappy air all day, um, it's completely legitimate for them to use to need to use those medications. Anyway, so that morning the MPCC came and they're like the least uh, organized, least professional testing group there is. So it's always it's always a little bit of a circus when MPCC shows up. Um, so that started day three of uh, Pyrenees for us. Um, the pre-race rounds, like uh, you know, like some, a lot of times I can't really talk so much about the problems that my guys have because of HIPAA and all that. Certainly, I can't say their names, but like there was one guy who was like fighting off a cold. These guys, you know, are so highly trained that their immune system—they're always like just like right on the edge of like. If you're a pro bike racer and you're not right on the edge of being sick at all times, then you're not training hard enough. <laughs> and, uh, and like, similarly in a race, like, if you're not, you know, on the verge of almost crashing, you know, like, a good portion of the time, then you're not racing hard enough. And uh, so my guys get sick and they get injured uh, often enough. Um, so, like, that morning, I remember one of my guys had a saddle sore and he said, hey, Prentice, I th- I've got this little thing going on and... They're, they're funny, like, even the older guys are like, God, oh, they don't want to show it to me. So they, they show it to me, and it was like, oh, God, it's like, you know, as big as my finger, like, and really, like, can turn into a big problem. I mean, sometimes these guys, they, like, they get such a bad infection, they'll lose, like, a month or a month and a half over a saddle sore. So um, it's kind of a silly thing, but it can be a serious uh, problem. And so we stayed on top of it, and it turned out fine. It wasn't a problem. Um, what else? Oh, yeah. There you go. And uh, so then we do the race. I think that was the day that Andrew took the yellow jersey. He had a really good day and was very exciting for us. I mean, you know, we're, uh, some of you, you, many of you said you know about our team, and so we're kind of known as the clean team. And we kind of, well, Jonathan kind of grooms our sponsors so that they don't expect us to be on the podium at every race. And um, so, you know, some, some teams, they end the season with 100 victories or more. And if we get, like, 15 or 20, we're, like, really happy. And um, 
and we're we're fine with that, and our sponsors are fine with that too, and and that's kind of how it should be. And so when Andrew t- won the stage and took the yellow jersey, we get really excited when we have a big race. Um, we one of our other guys, Dan Martin, a young Irish kid, won Tour of Catalonia just a few days ago, maybe a week ago now. Huge for us, huge for him, huge for us. Um, very exciting and. We definitely don't win so often that we take it for granted. Um, so we have the race, and then uh, you know we do have the in-competition testing after the race. They always do the race leader, the GC leader, and then two, we still call them randoms, but they're not randoms. They don't pretend for them to be random. They're carefully selected. Um, it's sort of an honor when you're <laughs> if you're clean <laughs> and you're selected to do anti-doping, it's kind of an honor if you're if you're not clean, then it's serving its purpose. Um, oh, yeah, this was the day where uh, Jacob Rath um, just had a small crash. And, you, you know, it, you've seen the footage on TV. These guys can have spectacular crashes and pop up and get back on their bikes and finish the race, no problem. Or they can have just, like, the silliest little, like, a lot of people here, here are old enough to remember laughing, the guy with the raincoat and the tricycle, and he tips over. <laughs> and... Uh, um, so Jacob had one of those and he broke uh, a bone in his hand and uh, he was able to finish the race but he, it wasn't much much fun and we couldn't tell for sure from the team car if it was broken but you know in a stage race of course if you drop out one day you're out for good so we went to the hotel and um, um, I don't know how we used to do bike racing in Europe before we had Garmin or, or GPS devices of any kind but I know we spent a lot of time looking at maps and a lot of time being lost. And, and, uh, and now I just put in hospital, you know, 2.3 kilometers. And so we're at clinic uh, Jean d'Arc. And uh, so we get an x-ray and he's got a little break in the base of the first metacarp or fifth metacarpal. So, so you can kind of see it. I have a laser somewhere. Um, then it was very controversial. Jacob is 22, and he wanted to continue, and we kind of wanted it. I did, and the director wanted him to continue, but some of his teammates were like, like, like you, me, and the coach, uh, Eric, you guys are making Jacob, Jacob take the start tomorrow. We're like, we're not making him take the start. And Andrew's in the yellow jersey, and he's up for it, and it's not, it's not like going to shatter and, and be a big problem, and he's going to be deformed for the rest of his life or something. So it was particularly David Miller. Some of you know who he is. He's very uh, particular about things, and he really thought that if we were doing the right thing, we should um, pack Jacob's bags for him and put him on a nice plane trip home. But So he did take the start the next day, but it was, in fact, too painful, and he pulled out after about 80 or 100 kilometers. Uh, which was fine. We knew that was a possibility. Um, so, so yeah, then we um, take care of everything that needs to happen after the race, get to the next hotel. Um, more often than not, there's a transfer involved. You know, these stage races are point to point to point, but the points in between have transfers. And uh, so we spend a lot of time driving. Um, that's the point where I, where sometimes I can do a quick run. The it, it's interesting, even like the guys like Eric or Johnny Welts who won a stage of the tour in '88, even Jonathan 
all the medical or all the team staff people um, become runners because there's a jillion bikes around, but none of them have our name on them, and uh, and the mechanics are. Even Jonathan, the guy who owns the team, has to ask very nicely for the mechanics to hand him over a bike to use. The rest of us, it's hopeless, so we become runners. I luckily was a runner before I became a cyclist. So um, we run, and we run together, or we run individually. We sneak in a run. But the, the beauty of that is I, uh, was, I get to do some really cool runs that are just like random offhand runs. Here I go, and I'm off into like some really really cool beautiful area and or i am in an industrial zone and it's really horrible but so it can go either way but um and then we have dinner and then i i guess kind of at the end and i hope some i hope you have some questions um then then it's like i'm, I'm on call 24 7 well i'm really on call 24 7 the whole year because you know cycling uh, being a popular sport worldwide, um, it's a northern and southern hemisphere sport, so we really don't have an off-season. Um, people kind of observe November, December, but e- there are races even then. So we'll do the Tour Down Under in Australia in January, and we'll do uh, a couple. Now they have this new five-day race in the Beijing area in October. And so we race pretty much straight through. And so I, I have the three assistants who um, cover a lot of the races, but I'm kind of always in the background overseeing what's going on. But when we're in a race, um, they can come at any time and knock on the door. And it's, it's really funny. I, sh- I could write a funny story about the middle of the night knocks. But, like, for example, 2011, we, were, we had Thor Hushoft, who was world champion at the time, and he was in the yellow jersey at the tour for seven days. And he knocks on my door, and he's like, he doesn't look well. He's like, Prentice, my stomach hurts. And uh, um, so I, I like sat up with him for an hour and and we tried a couple of things and talked it through and then got him back to bed. And I was like, oh God, it's going to be, this is not going to be good. But it all, it quieted down. It was not a problem. But it is kind of fun. And, and like as I've gotten older, I, I was like 30 when I started doing this. I finished residency when I was 29. And, um, you know, like some of the, my guys were older than me, but they were mostly younger, but near the same age. But now almost every single one of them, I could be their father. So it's, it's kind of fun. And uh, it's, it's evolved into a nice relationship where I, I kind of like, you know, I feel like I'm taking care of them. And if they get sick or they get hurt, I have a son who's 28 or stepson, but he's 28. So if they get sick or they get hurt, I feel, um, I feel responsible and I feel like true concern. They, as an emergency physician, you know, you have these fleeting relationships with people, and you don't really have that. Um, what else? Uh, does that mean anything to anyone? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's it. Questions, anyone, about pretty much anything relating to taking care of a pro bike racing team, sir? Yeah, the, the question is, and I've was told to repeat the question because you don't have a microphone, was how we deal with prescriptions and such when, when we're on the road. So other countries are amazingly loose um, compared to what we have. So if I show you know, a California driver's license and a California medical license, it's a, a little white card, they'll give me anything I want. And it's not I haven't gone in and asked you know, for a big bottle of Dilaudid or anything like that. <laughs> but... 
but they're very they're very agreeable. So basically, I uh, the the four of us we travel with a very small supply of a lot of things, like one course of a whole lot of things, and and then we count on restocking and getting the things that we where we can't possibly anticipate everything that we need. We count on being able to get it on the road, and it's never really been a problem. I I think if other teams like coming from Belgium or France or Spain to the tour of California, I'm sure they have problems and they probably need to enlist the help of the event medical staff to get around that. We're One thing I think that's great about emergency medicine for this kind of sports medicine practice is that we're really, we're really trained to be problem solvers. And so that's one of the problems that we, that we had to solve and still do occasionally. I, I'm sorry, this fellow first. Pro bike racing in Europe is much more like uh, auto racing in the United States. So we have corporate sponsors. And so we're the Garmin Sharp team. Um, Garmin gives us X million. Sharp gives us X million. And we have four or five lesser sponsors. And I think our annual budget is 15 million, something like that. And then we have uh, a ton of equipment-only type sponsors. Um, and I think our top writer gets paid a million a year. So, and our we there is a base salary in the International Cycling Union, and I think it's fifty thousand euros. So that would be seventy or seventy-five thousand U.S. dollars. So that's minimum wage for our guys. So yeah, they do fine. And uh, the staff, we're all paid. I'm paid on par with what I make um, as an American emergency physician. So days on the road. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's it's a small business, and we think of it sometimes like if we're, you know, if we were like a trucking company or if we were a software company with that many employees, we're just a company that owns and operates a bike race with that bike team with that many employees. So yeah, and then I, I guess Jonathan at the end of the year, like whatever's left over, he gets to keep. So <laughs> the sponsors put in all the cash, the, the employees get paid, and then what's left over goes to the owners of the team. So yeah. I, I don't think anybody's getting super rich, but I think everybody's doing okay. There is the band list that WADA puts out and revises every year, but they, they're reasonable, and they're, they're um, I was going to say they're not unreasonable, obviously, if they're reasonable. And so, you know, like Vicodin, hydrocodone is legal. Um, uh, tramadol, Ultram is legal. Um, there is a problem with Ultram, Tramadol. Guys want to take it during races. because, and, and I've said, you know, a long, hard day in the saddle is not an indication for long-acting opiate medication. <laughs> but it, it is a problem. I think currently if you tested um, the riders, um, as, as many as half or more might be taking it on a regular basis. It's a real problem. Um, but, it, yeah, once you get comfortable with the WADA band list, um, they don't, intend for anybody to suffer or, you know, have to have legitimate health care um, withheld from them. Yeah. So the questions, and I've been bad about repeating them, is uh, first is sleep issues in, in the cyclist. Sorry? Sleep issues. And the second was um, serious back uh, disc nerve pathology. Well, the, the sleep, that's a great question because it is really a big problem. And... Uh, I had something the other day. I was in the process of moving from Napa to Santa Cruz, and I was so tired that I couldn't sleep. And uh, I have guys tell me that on a regular basis, and I was like, what? How can you be so tired you can't sleep? That doesn't make any sense. 
And like it's you know it's like sleepy versus tired, physically exhausted but not sleepy, you know, mentally. So then we get into a problem. Like some guys are like every night they want to take a sleeping pill, and uh, you know, like we do have kind of a, a general. It's not written, but a team policy. Like during, during during the Tour de France, it's such chaos and it's so important. Pretty much anything goes as far as sleeping pills go. The rest of the year, we're really we try to be really strict. We use melatonin, we use diphenhydramine, Benadryl, um, the occasional benzodiazepine or um, or Ambien. But it, it's a real problem, and um, you know, like one of my guys said, what if I, what would happen if I took a Tamazepam? Or in France is bromazepam um, every night for the Tour de France for 23 nights, and I said, "Well, I said I think you'd probably go in withdrawal after the after the racing to have a really rough week of sleeping afterwards. I think 23 days would be enough to get a little tolerance going." Um, so we try to I try to work with them and I try to educate them if they understand the, the importance or the seriousness of it, and and we generally can find. Like some guys, it's not a problem at all, and then you know, like two or three guys, it's a huge problem. And um, and we've even done like you know sleep hygiene. There's a whole list of like 20 things that you need to do to to sleep well, like not watch TV in bed, not use the computer in bed, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an it's an interesting and ongoing issue. Um, as far as the back problems go, yeah, I mean, riding on a bike is really hard on the lower back, and uh, the chiropractors. We'll see nearly every rider, nearly every day um, during a stage race, and a, uh, a considerable part of that has to do with back. And again, it'll be you know a handful of guys really have back issues, and the rest have no issues. So um, I've never had had a guy go to surgery. I've had a couple of guys that had epidural injections with corticosteroid. Um, the chiropractors, I mean, I'm a bit. I, in, Truly general chiropractic, I think, is really, really good and does a lot of good. And so I see our chiropractors work on the guys and get them through things that, you know, I know um, no orthopedic surgeon can handle. Sorry, apologies if there are any orthopedists here. Um, as far as bike racing, I always say if you need an orthopedic surgeon, you need a plane ticket home. Uh, um, but... Yeah, it's, you know, these guys, everything pops up and we deal with them case by case. And what we can't do between me and the chiropractor, then we'll find somebody who can take care of the situation. Anyone else? Sir? Head injuries were super difficult to deal with up until about two years ago when a big conference was held in Zurich, and it's called the Zurich Conference. Um, so really our first thought as we're watching or helping a guy get back into the race is whether or not they may have experienced a head injury. Um, but then um, once we're clear that hasn't been the case, um, you know, on the road, in the race, we don't really worry that much about the road rash. We, like, maybe we'll squirt it out with a water bottle, and um, and that's it. You see the guys finish the line, cross the finish line with torn-up shorts and hamburger-y hips, and we deal with it when we get back to the room because it's, it's going to be sweaty and dirty. And, you know, if we need to, like, put a bandage on of some kind just to, like, protect it and maybe control bleeding. On the bike, we don't worry that much about it. But when we get back to the hotel, then, you know, you, you get, I, I just send them into the shower with a washcloth and soap, and they just clean them themselves. The idea of, like, scrubbing road rash is just barbaric and sadistic and... <laughs> 
completely unnecessary and overkill. I mean, there are certainly some wounds where you do need to pick out gravel and, and really debride a bit, but these guys go down all the time. I mean, if they, they end up with an ugly scar, they don't care. That's not a, not a big issue. But um, the idea that you need to scrub road rash, ooh, <laughs> no. We have a, there, there's like five or six different ways that you can treat a wound. And like all, every rider has their favorite way that they've had over the years. And, uh, and it's, it's really annoying the way they have, like, well, like I mentioned Johan van Sommeren, uh he won Perry Roubaix year before last. His father's a doctor. So he has a big crash that was like stage whatever, five in uh, Mets in the tour last year. Huge amounts of road rash. His father sends over this big box of like silver colloidal stuff. It's like 12 euros a sheet, so 20 bucks a sheet or 15, 18 dollars a sheet. And it takes like three of them a day. And so, you know, if you've got a father that's going to send you those things, then yeah, we'll work with it. But basically, we get them clean, and then we put just a fine layer of antibiotic ointment, and then we use like a, a really good non-adhesive Telfa pad to just like really like cover the wound, but nothing more. And then there's this stuff that it's called Ergoderm or Fixoderm. It's got 12 different names. It's in a 10 centimeter roll, and you you cut off however much you want, and then we like round the corners, and you would do like little artwork and get it like so. There's two or three centimeters around the edge of the dressing and and the stuff sticks really well too and even in a sweaty cyclist it's like the end of the day it's still there and you have to peel it off in the shower and so we've got the guys trained and when we have new guys coming in like this is how we do this This is how we deal with wounds here it's it's not real expensive it's really easy to get our hands on the supplies and it works and there's also that second skin stuff you know like a layer of plastic that turns it into like a blister i had a guy that at a race, he loved that stuff, and like he did a race, he finished it, had a big abrasion on his shoulder. Like two weeks later, I saw him, and he was putting it on every day, and it was just basically perpetuating this blister. It was never going to heal <laughs> because he kept covering it with this stuff. Um, so that's how we do it. We keep it really simple. It works. It's co- it's cost effective. I tell the guys that there's two kinds of issues with sleep and they they seem to all agree that they fall into one or the others there's the group that have trouble falling asleep but once they're asleep they're fine and for those people the drug is is ambien um what's the word sulfidem and uh and then there's the people that have a hard time getting to sleep uh wait no then there's the people that fall asleep easily but then wake up at three or four and and they can't go back to sleep so they need something long-acting, and so that would be a benzodiazepine mid, mid-range acting like temazepam or bromazepam. And th- that's the one where potentially it could still be in your system. But, you know, most they go to bed at 10 or 11, and most of the races don't start till 11, even till 12. So I don't really think that there's any active substance at that point, you know, 12, 13 hours later. And uh, they're also hypermetabolic, too, I think, so they burn it up pretty quickly. All right. So we had a guy, uh, Jack Bauer, who I think it was getting Wevelgum last week, and he, the footage was impressive. And, you know, it comes up on YouTube, like, within an hour, and he just, like, it wasn't a spectacular crash, but you could tell he went down hard, and then he was just 
limp out, not moving nothing for like a minute. And he could have been dead just to look at him. And uh, it was impressive. And so my guy, my assistant who's there, had the luxury of like walking, walking him through the uh, process of returning to training and competition. Um, normally we have to do it over the phone or by email and talk to the riders every day about um, a graded re-entry to training and competition. But, uh, you know, you guys read the papers, the NFL and uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy and all that. Um, bike racing is definitely on board with that, or at least our team is. Thank you very much. It's been fun. I hope that was interesting for you guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.